Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 21st, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part three of our presentation of Clifton Emheiser's special notices to all who deny to seed line. Before I commence, there are a few things that I have to say. There are a lot of people who are rather new to Christian identity, who listen to us, who know us from social media, who have just learned of Christogenia or other related or associated websites and ministries within the past couple of years. Often these people wonder why we have divisions with other supposed Christian identity teachers or pastors. Some of them call these divisions teacher wars, and that is patently unfair. These are not teacher wars. These are truth wars. Christogenia itself, and I might sound like I'm bragging a little, but I'm really not. I'm just stating facts. Christogenia itself is not merely a website. It is also a publishing and information technology project in its own right. I host the writings of Clifton Emmeheiser, Bertrand Comparé, Wesley Swift, and other writers on the Christogenia domain, and I myself do not necessarily agree with everything that each of these teachers of Scripture have written. I also host, and I have even developed websites, for dozens of other Christian identity pastors and writers on other domains, as well as for several European and American nationalists, people that aren't even Christian identity, but who publish information on exclusively historical topics, which is valuable to our cause. Although some of the people we host sites for often reimburse us in one way or another, we always host and develop these sites at entirely our own expense, free and without charge, to many other Christian identity ministries. I do not say these things to brag about what we do for others, but I have this to say. If I were interested in teacher wars, I would not do any such thing. I would not spend time helping to enable other teachers, especially where I don't agree with everything they write, but because we agree on core values. I don't mind doing it for them at all. It's part of my service to make sure that their writings get out there. Because we agree on core values, it's fully worthwhile an endeavor. And this alone should prove that I am not interested in any so-called teacher wars. I have much more productive things to do. I'm sure as hell interested in the propagation of our core values. Sometimes I am compelled to elucidate problems in the words of others, and especially when I feel that they are damaging to our Christian identity cause. Christ comes first, and we must always be cognizant of the fact that we should be contending for the faith, not kissing one another's asses. So when I do speak poorly of other Christian identity pastors or teachers, it is not for my own ego, and it is not because I desire to uplift myself. P. 
pity us if we choose to exalt ourselves at the expense of others. Rather, it is only on account of truth. These are not teacher wars, but rather they are truth wars. As Paul of Tarsus wrote to the Ephesians, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Some of those high places are indeed infiltrated into Christian identity. I'm going to read a part of a paragraph from a book. This book is promoted by its author within Christian identity circles to this very day. I will read from the paragraph before revealing its source. And it is in reference to the encounter of Christ with the Canaanite woman, as it was described in the Gospel of of Matthew. The writer says, Jesus was not preaching truth justice, love, and mercy for one group of people only, namely the tribal in-crowd, he was preaching these things for all people. I don't know if this is a Christian identity pastor or a social justice warrior. They're his exact words. And he goes on to say, yet there is a special role to be played by the Israelites, that of leadership by example. This is what the crumbs represent in the story. Non-Israelites are to learn from us by our example of justice, obedience, and charity, and all of the blessings that proceed therefrom. I thought our blessings came from God, and this clown thinks that blessings come from charity. And he goes on to say, And it can be truly said that the descendants of Israel have civilized the world and have done their best, despite all their faults, to spread this gospel around the world. It is not the Jews who have provided the world with the Magna Carta, the U.S. Constitution, freedom of religion, cross-cultural charity, and other acts of nobility on a mass scale. Wow, that's Christian identity? I thought that was maybe from Joel Osteen or Billy Graham. If you would agree that the ideals expressed in the Magna Carta or in the United States Constitution were provided the world, please do not listen or read any further. You have a serious lack of historical understanding. If you want to think that the men who wrote the Bill of Rights really cared about religious freedom in China or in the Congo, you have a serious lack of historical understanding, and again, I would rather you did not read or listen any further. Beat it, scram, you don't belong here. The Magna Carta was an agreement with which the English nobility forced upon their king for their own interests and protection. It did not bring peace, but rather, if you really study the Magna Carta, it brought several years of war. The Barons' War. The U.S. Constitution was made, as the writers declared in the preamble, for us and our posterity, not for Chinese and niggers in the Congo. 
meaning that it was only intended for them and their descendants. But this is a Jewish tactic to pervert the significance and purposes of important historical documents or events in order to employ them in their own nefarious agenda, which in this case is the promotion of egalitarianism. Here this writer has also promoted cross-cultural charity as an act of nobility. Yeah, give your daughters to niggers, that's cool, right? Is that really the case, or has cross-cultural charity been an act of foolishness on the part of white Christian nations, which has resulted in a drain of resources from every white nation? Resources which have then been used against us by our enemies. For example, the food aid which was sent to Africa 30 or 40 years ago has caused a virtual explosion in the nigger population which is now resulting in a flood of immigrant refugees into Europe. The food aid in the 80s caused the refugee flood in the last decade. The cultural transfers made to Asia have resulted in the transfer of all American and European technology and manufacturing to the sweatshops of China and the loss of millions of Christian jobs. The populations in Asia have exploded and the Chinese are now buying up our industry, our homes, and our land. Yahweh, our God, had commanded us to be a separate people and not to make agreements with strangers. Cross-cultural charity is not a blessing, but a punishment. A punishment on Christian nations for their sin. Deuteronomy chapter 28 makes it quite clear that for sin, you shall build a house and you shall not dwell therein. You shall plant a vineyard and shall not eat the grapes thereof. Your ox shall be slain before your eyes and you shall not eat thereof. Your ash shall be violently taken away from you, and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given unto your enemies, and you shall have none to rescue them. The punishment today is disguised as taxes, which are used to support further such cross-cultural charity. But worst of all, this writer would also give away our Savior himself, where he wrote that Jesus was not preaching truth, justice, love, and mercy for one group of people only, namely the tribal in-crowd. He was preaching these things for all people. The reference which he makes to the tribal in-crowd is similar to references used by Jewish psychologists in order to demean what they also like to call white privilege. One example of such Jewish writing is from a French-born Jew named David Berebi, who wrote a book titled, Us and Them, Understanding Your Tribal Mind. And of course, he was only seeking to undermine tribalism among whites. He didn't care about Jews. Lately, it's been published, Us and Them, The Science of Identity. And this is the sort of identity that the author of this passage is really pushing. He writes like a Jewish psychologist and pushes egalitarianism into Christian identity through surreptitious means. True white identity Christians should not even think of themselves with such terms as tribal in-crowd, which are basically Jewish slanders. The love of God 
truth, justice, and mercy were all exclusively promised to the children of Israel. As we have often stated in the past, the law was only given to the children of Israel, and it was never intended for anyone else. As it says in the 147th Psalm, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any other nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. Writing that psalm, David himself had praised God that he did not give the law to any other people. David realized that Yahweh did not give the law to chinks and niggers, and he praised God for it. There is nowhere in Scripture which contradicts that statement in the Psalms. The writer of this passage from this book is Eli James, whose real name is Joseph November. It appears on page 111 of his book, The Great Impersonation, and he sells copies of it to this very day. He has inserted many other such statements into his work, not only in that particular book, but also in many of his podcasts. I never had a copy of this book until Eli himself gave one to me in November, that's a fitting month, of 2010. At the same time, similar comments became more frequent in his other writings. And in January of 2011, we had to split on that account. I explained a lot of the reasons for our split in several podcasts, but summed them up in the March 2013 presentation titled, The Universalism of Eli James. There is a huge difference between crumbs, which fall from a table accidentally, and the purposeful giving away of one's blessings to the dogs. Eli James would rip the bread from the hands of the children, cast it to the floor, and call it crumbs. The man is a devil. This is not a teacher war. It is a truth war for the hearts and minds of identity Christians everywhere. Whether we are going to choose the world or choose Christ, we are not going to shirk from the battle. With that, we shall commence with a, with a presentation and discussion of Clifton Emmerheiser's Special Notice to All Who Deny to Seed Line, Part 3. And Clifton begins. Two papers have now been completed on Special Notice to All Who Deny to Seed Line. Parts 1 and 2. This will be Part 3. I apologize for the redundancy. If you don't have Numbers 1 and 2, you may want to get copies in order to bring yourself up to date on this present one. How many more there will be in this series has not yet been determined. Again, it cannot be overstated. We are in a 7,000 plus year old war the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. If you're an identity Christian, you'd better take this seriously. Or, Yahshua Christ says in the Revelation that if you're lukewarm, he will spew you from his mouth. Clifton says in this paper, we will continue to point out what this war is all about and who the opposing forces are. 
In the last paper, we left off with Colossians 2.15, showing how Yahshua put the satanic Jew seed line to an open shame and stripped them of their authority. If anybody believes the words of Christ, they would understand that all of his opponents were indeed stripped of their authority, so long as his people believe and follow his words. Clifton says that with this endeavor, we will start with Luke chapter 11, verses 49 through 51. We will use this passage rather than Matthew 23, 34 through 36, for there are problems with Matthew's version. And often when one quotes a passage of scripture, it forces a digression in order to speak of something unrelated to the original discussion. Clifton will address this passage of Matthew a little further on in this essay. It was about this time that Clifton had realized that the Zacharias of these words of Christ could not have been the son of Barachias, but that passage in Matthew has most likely suffered an early interpolation of the text. The words son of Barachias are not found in all of the oldest manuscripts, and the Zacharias to whom Christ refers here is almost certainly the father of John the Baptist, which Clifton had first seen in the apocryphal writings attributed to the Apostle James. I would agree, even if I do not agree with the entire substance of the apocryphal manuscript as it now exists. Continuing with Clifton, who is now reading from Luke, Therefore, also said the wisdom of Yahweh, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required. And Clifton makes a note that the verb is exadio, which means to demand an account of. May be required of this generation. And that word, Clifton points out, is Strong's number 1074 in the Greek dictionary, genea, and it means race. From the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zacharias, which perished, between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation, or of this race. Clifton says that here, Messiah is charging the Jews with the murder of Abel. It would have been criminally illegal on the part of Yahshua to make such a charge if it were not true. The only way he could legally, or I would say lawfully, have produced such a serious charge was if the Jews of his day were descended from Cain, for no other person in all of history was responsible for the murder of Abel but Cain. Most anti-seedliners are strangely quiet on this passage, although Ted R. Wieland, in his booklet Eve, Did She or Didn't She?, erroneously tries to prove that the scribes and Pharisees were true Israelites. On page 68, where he makes the following statement, and Clifton, quoting Ted Wieland, says that seedliners claim that because the Pharisees and their progenitors were charged with the murders of all the righteous from Abel to Zacharias, they cannot be Israelites, but instead must be Cainites of the seed of Satan. 
The truth is that because the Pharisees and their forefathers, the truth according to Wieland, were indicted for the murder of the righteous martyrs, they cannot be Canaanites, but instead must be Israelites. Here Clifton is once again taking apart the words of Ted Wieland. This is not a teacher war, but a battle for truth. Wieland really makes himself look ignorant with that statement. As the descendants of Seth, who was a replacement for Abel, as a race cannot possibly be held accountable for the blood of Abel. But we will let Clifton address this first. And he says that Wieland further states on page 94, the seedliners teach that the Pharisees were Cainites of the seedline of Satan. Whereas Matthew chapters 3, 27, John 7, John 8, Acts chapters 4, 24, I'm sorry, Acts chapters 4 in diverse places, and chapter 7 of Acts, according to Wieland, declare that the Pharisees were Judahites of the seed line of Jacob, Israel. And I was going to let Clifton address this first. I can't help myself but to interject that Christ had also told his adversaries... But you believe not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. Now, what Israelite would that include, who was not my sheep? Christ did not say that ye are not my sheep, because you do not believe, as the Judaized denominational churches seem to claim, and apparently Ted Whelan agrees with them. Rather, it proves that Christ's adversaries were not Israelites in the first place. Clifton will mention this passage a little further on. Continuing with Clifton, who offers an excellent response from another perspective, he says that if what Wieland is implying were true, the Messiah would be condemning the entire race of Israelites, including himself his family, the apostles, the disciples, in speaking of them as a quote-unquote generation. For the word generation used in this passage is genea, and it, in Greek it means race, according to the Complete Word Study Dictionary by Spiro Zuriates on page 362. It is a race then generally in the sense of affinity of communion based upon the sameness of stock, a race or posterity, a descent or genealogical line of ancestors or descendants. And then Clifton quotes the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament by Joseph Henry Thayer, which agrees that it is a begetting, a birth, a nativity, Passively, that which has been begotten, men of the same stock, a family, the several ranks in a natural descent, the successive members of a genealogy, and as a metaphor, a race of men very much like each other in endowments, pursuits, character, and especially in a bad sense, a perverse race. Clifton says that it would appear that maybe Whelan should have checked his Greek before he made such a spurious statement. Therefore, the only conceivable meaning this passage could convey is that the Pharisees were the Genea of Cain. Yahshua plainly told the Jewish Pharisees in John 10.26, Ye are not my sheep. 
There is nothing more blasphemous than to imply that Yahshua the Messiah was a racial brother to these Jews. Now the word in this passage, which is translated as generation, must instead refer to a race. And I'm going to quote something I wrote several years ago in my commentary on Luke chapter 11 in verses 50 and 51. The word Genea is a race, stock, family, also a tribe or nation, a race or generation, according to Liddell and Scott. And so, in the King James Version, it is more often than not rendered as generation, as the King James does here. In defiance of the context and the basic meaning of the word, in this context, where we have sons and fathers both near and remote, if we look at Luke 11 verses 47 and 48, and with both the remote past and the recent past in focus, when we see the comparison to Abel and Zacharias in verse 51, the word must be rendered as race, for it cannot be referring to merely a single generation. Christ is talking about sons and fathers from Abel to Zechariah. And a single generation is properly only a portion of a race living at a given time. There are many other ways by which Christ had disassociated himself racially from his adversaries, and especially in John chapter 8 and Luke chapters 10 and 11. Wieland must not have read any of Josephus, and it is amazing that a supposed pastor could ignore all of the history which helps to put the New Testament into its proper perspective. The denominational Christian sects have this idea that all one needs is the Bible to understand the Bible. It started as a Roman Catholic doctrine. But I have heard many Southern Baptists repeat it only in regards to a different Bible. While that may seem to be possible, that all one needs is the Bible to understand the Bible, the Bible as we know it is absolutely silent on over 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, which for that reason cannot possibly be understood. The doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture only, would be legitimate only if we could have assurances that the scriptures which we have are complete when the scriptures themselves attest that they are not complete. For example, Jude quotes the writings of Enoch, but where are they in our scriptures? Where is the original book of Jasher, or the book of the wars of Yahweh? Where is the books of Gad the seer, or Nathan the prophet, or Edo the prophet, or the sayings of the seers? All of these books were mentioned in the Old Testament. And today, none of them are actually known to exist. But if one still continues to insist on adhering to the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, then Ezekiel chapter 35 and Romans chapter 9 help to explain what is actually going on in John chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 23 and in Luke chapters 10 and 11 along with the words of Christ in the Revelation concerning those who falsely claim to be Judeans. Furthermore, 
Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16 discuss the ancient race mixing of the Israelites with the Canaanites and the reasons for their iniquity. However, the histories of Judea found outside of the Bible also helped to further clarify these things, helped to fill in what was happening in Judea during those missing centuries between the Testaments. And it is intellectually reckless to disregard their testimonies. Men have protested by saying such things as, well, if God wanted us to have them, they would have been in there. But the lists of canon were compiled by men and not by God. Perhaps it may just as easily be said that God did want us to have the necessary information, and therefore we have the histories of Flavius Josephus. The doctrine of sola scriptura will not absolve a man of the consequences of willful ignorance. So, Clifton continues in that same light. And he says that evidently, Ted R. Wieland never read Josephus' Wars, referring to Wars Book 2. Josephus makes it quite clear that the Pharisees and Sadducees were not Israelites by birth. Now let's read the passage. And he quotes from Josephus' description of the three sects of the religion among the Judeans. And it says, For there are three philosophical sects among the Jews, or Judeans, the followers of the first, of whom are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees, and the third sect, who pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Jews, or Judah, or Judeans, if you will, by birth, and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. It must be kept in mind that Josephus is using the word which we translate as Judeans. But originally it referred to those people of the kingdom of Judah who returned to reestablish Jerusalem. And Clifton comments, It would appear from this that of these three mentioned, only the Essenes could claim to be pure-blooded Israelites. That many, perhaps a majority, of the Pharisees and Sadducees were neither true Israelites nor of the true of the true tribe of Judah. Why didn't Josephus mention the Pharisees and Sadducees as being Jews or Judeans by birth? Now, what I may have said is that the Pharisees and Sadducees were allowing people of other races among them, while the Essenes certainly were not. But even that is not quite correct. And we tend to oversimplify history in our endeavor to summarize the accounts. First, even in the Gospels, Yahshua Christ had warned the Pharisees of their proselytizing, whereby they took in non-Israelites of any sort, and after baptizing and circumcising them, they proclaimed them to be Israelites. 
But as Christ had told them, they really became twice fold the children of hell. The concept of such conversions is not at all scriptural. And the entire race of the Edomites in Judea had also been converted in that same manner, under military compulsion, as Josephus explains elsewhere. But while Christ did have communion with, and did teach certain of the Pharisees, he never had any communion with the Sadducees, and he never even addressed the Sadducees, except where they had accosted and confronted him. Furthermore, there are indications in Acts chapter 5 that these Sadducees were not Israelites at all, but were a sect of the Edomites. This seems to be the case, as Christ himself had never sought any lost sheep from among the Sadducees. Continuing with Clifton, he says, I know that in John 8.33 and John 8.37, it appears from the rendering that the scribes and Pharisees might be true Israelites. Sure, the Arabs can claim Abraham is their father. And I would say that this is true of only certain tribes of Arabs, which it is, but not of all Arabs. We know also that the Jews of Messiah's day had absorbed Edomite blood, and therefore could claim both Abraham and Isaac as their fathers. The Shelonite Judahites could even claim an affinity with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. But that doesn't make them of the true tribe of Judah. Recent archaeological findings are showing evidence that two of Esau's wives were, more than likely, of the Cain satanic seed line. Even Howard B. Rand, in his book Primogenesis, Plate 11, at the end of his book, shows Pharaoh's Ramses I and II of Egypt to be descended from the house of Esau through Eliphaz. Now, I do not know which archaeological evidence Clifton had in mind here. Perhaps we will find that out and discuss it further in part four of this series. And I do not have a copy of Howard Rand's Primogenesis, so I cannot comment on Rand's evidence. However, it is quite clear in history that the Egyptian pharaohs of the late 18th and 19th dynasties were intermarrying with Hittite princesses and sending their own daughters to intermarry with the Hittites. Furthermore, there are families of families of unknown origins who had usurped the throne of Egypt at diverse times. Clifton himself had explained many of these things around the same time that he wrote this paper, in his early Watchman's Teaching Letters. The remains of the Ramazide pharaohs are said to belong to European DNA haplogroups, at least on the maternal side their mitochondrial DNA. And that may be expected, but the visible features in their skeletal remains reveal their Hittite admixture. Furthermore, as for Esau, it is very plain in Scripture that Esau married wives of the Canaanites. And it is very plain in Scripture that the Canaanites were in turn mixed with both the Kenites and the Rephaim, who are the giants produced in the race-mixing events of Genesis chapter 6.
and all of this can be easily traced through the first 15 chapters of Genesis. Wheeling can choose to remain ignorant of the histories of Flavius Josephus, which certainly prove that the Edomites, in large numbers throughout the cities of Palestine, were forced into Judaism, and which are corroborated. The histories of Flavius Josephus are corroborated by statements made by Paul of Tarsus and the Greek geographer Strabo of Cappadocia, as well as by the Gospels themselves. But in spite of Ted Wieland and his ilk, the Herodian dynasty and many of its officers and temple appointments were indeed of Edomite stock, and Christ denied any connection of kinship with them. To see the biblical truth of this, we only need to understand that in Scripture, where Christ and the Apostles speak of children and seed, they are speaking of literal children and literal seed, as there is no such thing as spiritual sperm, which Clifton pointed out many years ago in another paper. Clifton continues by discussing that questionable passage in Matthew which he had mentioned earlier. This is going to be a long digression. He says, as was indicated at the start of this third paper, there are problems with Matthew 23 verses 34 and 35, a parallel of Luke 11, 49 and 51 quoted above. In these passages we are being told that one, the Almighty would send apostles and prophets, future tense, that there had been scribes and prophets sent in the past. These past scribes and prophets were all the way from and including Abel to Zacharias, and for that this race of Cain was in times past and throughout the future responsible for their deaths. That may sound fantastic, but even... 1 Chronicles chapter 2 tells us that Kenites were the scribes in Jerusalem. So, they certainly were present, along with the Shelahite Judahites and others. Clifton says, if you will read these passages very carefully, you will notice that Abel was the first righteous prophet. The next thing which should be noticed is the fact that Luke does not mention Zechariah's father. From research, it seems to appear that someone added the words son of Barachias in Matthew 23.35. If this is the case, it, it has caused a lot of confusion. Clifton proceeds by quoting from a commentary on the Holy Bible edited by the Reverend J.R. Dumelo on page 701. Dumelo has the, the, the abbreviation M.A. after his name which is Master of Arts, I gather. Dumelo says, Zechariah, son of Barachias. Jesus probably said Zechariah, as in St. Luke, without mentioning the father's name. But the evangelist, or one of the early copyists, who thought it necessary to distinguish among the 29 Zechariahs of the Old Testament, and understood the canonical prophet to be meant, added the words, son of Barachias. The canonical prophet meaning the prophet of the book of Zechariah. 
He goes on to say, There can be no real doubt that the person meant is Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. Referring to 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20. Concerning whom there was a Jewish tradition that his blood could not be removed by washing, but remained bubbling on the ground where it had been shed. In the Jewish arrangement of the books of the sacred canon, Chronicles stands last, so that Jesus chose his examples from the first and last books of the Jewish Bible. Now Clifton has a little note here that it should be Hebrew and not Jewish Bible. Dumelo makes a grave mistake in following the Jews by any means. The words son of Barachias in Matthew 23.35 are wanting in the Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the oldest surviving manuscripts of Matthew. And as Clifton had pointed out, they are also wanting in Luke's account of this episode at Luke 11.51. For that, and for historical reasons, I esteem them to be an interpolation, and I have omitted them from my own translation. Like Clifton Emmerheiser, after the writers of the apocryphal Protevangelion of James, I was also persuaded that the Zechariah meant here is most likely the father of John the Baptist, who was also a temple priest, whom Luke portrays as having prophesied, and whom therefore fits into the context of the dialogue of Christ. This other Zechariah, who was described as having been slain in 2 Chronicles 24.20, was called the son of Jehoiada. And since he does not fit this description, then Clifton's source is making a speculation about which there certainly can be doubt. Other modern Bibles also cross-reference Matthew 23.35 and 2 Chronicles 24.20 following the Jews, as our good reverend had admitted. But we do not esteem those references to be correct. But there is even more to the story. Clifton here has cited a commentary on the Holy Bible edited by the so-called reverend J.R. Dumelo, who had a master's degree, and who said there could be no real doubt that the person meant is Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. But in the book of the prophet known as Zechariah, which he himself admits, we read the words that appear in every known version which say, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of Yahweh unto Zechariah the son of Barachiah, the son of Edo the prophet, saying, Yahweh has been sore displeased with your fathers. If the words son of Barachias in Matthew 23.35 are to be accepted, they must refer to Zechariah the prophet of the book of that name, not to Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, because some Jew said so. Which is absolutely ridiculous that a churchman would follow a Jew. The churchmen are completely discredited by the fallacy of their logical arguments. However, even Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the prophet of the book bearing his name, was not the last prophet of Old Testament scripture, an honor which clearly belongs to Malachi. There should be no doubt that Malachi followed Zechariah by several decades, at least. 
Clifton continues and makes a good argument against the idea that the Zechariah of Matthew 23.35 could have been Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, which completely discredits all of the commentators who followed the Jews, including the good reverend. So, something good will come out of this. Clifton says, The story told here can be found in many reference books. The account might even have a thread of truth. The problem here is, it doesn't square with the rest of Scripture. While the story about the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24.20, and I believe that where Clifton said the account might even have a thread of truth, he's not referring to the Bible story, which of course is true, that Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 was killed. What Clifton's referring to is the Talmudic account that his blood was bubbling on the pavement in the temple and and would never have peace until he was avenged, right? That's what Clifton's referring to there. He says the problem here is it doesn't square with the rest of Scripture, saying that, meaning that the Zechariah of Matthew can't be the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And he says that while the story about the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24 is undoubtedly true, it is probably the wrong Zechariah, meaning that he is not the Zechariah intended by Christ in Matthew 23.35. No doubt, Clifton said, some copyists did insert Son of Barachias, for it is not found in Luke. The problem is most of the recorded prophets were after 878 B.C. when this particular Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, lived. In other words, Clifton says, if Yahshua was talking about the prophets between Abel and the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24.20, it would exclude most of the major and minor prophets. And let me say that this argument is exactly true, and entirely discredits the notion that the Zechariah of Matthew 23.35 could be the son of Jehoiada in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And I looked in my own King James Study Bible, which was published by Liberty University, and it also cross-references Matthew 23.35 to 2 Chronicles 24.20, which is ridiculous. If that were so, and Clifton's argument is entirely correct, if that were so, then the words of Christ would exclude all of the biblical prophets except for Jonah. Jonah did live before Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, for which we could see 2 Kings chapter 14, where Jonah is mentioned in retrospect. But all of the other prophets of the Bible wrote much later, from the time of Jeroboam II, who ruled Israel long after Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, was slain. And there's a paper at Christagenia titled Ordering and Chronology to Minor Prophets, which explains a lot of that. It's a brief couple of paragraphs. Clifton says, If you will check the dates in which most of the major and minor prophets lived, you will see what I mean. I am sure the Cain satanic seed line killed most of Yahweh's prophets after 878 B.C. It's like saying that the war started with the killing of Abel and continued to the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24, then subsided until the time of Yahshua, and then resumed. This war has been continuous ever since it started in Genesis 3.15. And it has. 
For whatever reason, Clifton did not consider Zechariah the prophet of the book by that name, who actually was the son of Barachias. But Zechariah the prophet was mentioned by both Ezra and Nehemiah, both of whom wrote their books at least a few decades after Zechariah, and neither of them mention his death. Clifton only goes on to state, that another Zechariah to be cited is the Zechariah mentioned by several commentaries and reference books who lived about 40 years after the Messiah. This one can be found in Josephus' Wars, Book 4. The only one left that really makes any sense is the death of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, found in the Proto-Evangelion, which is ascribed to the Apostle James a copy of which is found in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, which Clifton will quote here. It could also be found independently online, and we'll have a link to it with the notes to this program. Clifton quoting from the Protevangelion of James, chapter 16. But Herod made search after John, meaning John the Baptist, and sent servants to Zecharias, when he was ministering at the altar, and said unto him, Where hast thou hid thy son? He replied to them, I am a minister of God, or Yahweh, and a servant at the altar. How should I know where my son is? So the servants went back and told Herod the whole, at which he was incensed, and said, Is this not this son of his like to be king in Israel? Which wasn't quite true, but this is Herod, right? He sent therefore again his servants to Zechariah, saying, Tell us the truth, where is thy son? For you know that your life is in my hand. So the servants went and told him all this, but Zechariah replied to them, I am a martyr for God, and if he shed my blood, Yahweh, or the Lord, will receive my soul. Besides, know that ye shed innocent blood. However, Zechariah was murdered in the entrance of the temple and the altar, and about the partition. But the children of Israel knew not when he was killed. Then at the hour of salutation, the priests went into the temple. But Zechariah did not, according to custom, meet them and bless them. Yet they still continued waiting for him to salute them. And when they found he did not in a long time come, one of them ventured into the holy place where the altar was, and he saw blood lying upon the ground congealed. When, behold, a voice from heaven said, Zechariah is murdered, and his blood shall not be wiped away until the revenger of his blood come. Clifton responds. So you can plainly see here the description of Zechariah's death at the hand of Herod. Fits Luke 11, verses 41 through 47 through 51, and Matthew 23, verses 34 through 36 quite well. More importantly, it doesn't leave any huge gaps in history from Abel to this Zechariah. I like to think that that's all the prophets from A to Z. And, and that's interesting because the analogy only works in English. It doesn't work in Greek. In Greek, Z is like the sixth or seventh letter of the alphabet, I think. I forget. And not the last. Clifton says, also, with the future tense, it covers the entire time period from Yahshua up until our present time. And this is how Clifton interpreted the words of Christ in Luke 11.49, where it says, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. Clifton says, there have been no timeouts in this war. 
for evidence that it is a genetic race war between the children of darkness and the children of light, I will quote the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald on Matthew 23.36. While MacDonald, and also a page concerning Luke chapter 11, verses 50 and 51, while MacDonald doesn't grasp the Jewish question, he understands it is a matter of race. So quoting William MacDonald, Clifton writes, The guilt of all the past would come up upon the generation or race, MacDonald's words, or race to which Christ was speaking, as if all previous shedding of innocent blood somehow combined and climaxed in the death of the sinless Savior. A torrent of punishment would be poured out on the nation that hated its Messiah without a cause and nailed him to a criminal's cross. MacDonald knew that this was a racial condemnation, even if he didn't understand that half the people in Judea were Israelites and that half of the people in Judea were Edomites and that the wrath of Christ was directed towards the Edomites. MacDonald goes on to say, He would require of that generation the blood of all God's spokesmen, beginning with the first recorded case in the Old Testament, that of Abel, down to the last instance, that of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and a temple. Therefore, the Lord Jesus, or Yahshua, ran the entire gamut of martyrs when he mentioned Abel and Zechariah. As he uttered these words, he knew well that the generation then living would put him to death on the cross, and thus bring to an awful climax all their persecution of men and God. It was not at the cross, Clifton says, that Messiah imposed revenge for all the prophets from Abel up until his time, but at the siege of Titus at Jerusalem in 70 AD. For insight on this, I will quote, from the Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible abridged by Ralph Earl. Again, these comments are on the passages at Luke eleven forty-seven to 51 and Matthew 23, 34 to 36. And Clifton, quoting Ralph Earl, says that the Lord, or Yahshua, the Lord would, after the crucifixion of Christ, visit upon them the murder of all those righteous men that their state should grow worse and worse, till at last the temple should be destroyed, and they were finally ruined by the Romans. Then, commenting on the word required, Clark says, it may be translated either by the word visited or revenged, and the later word evidently conveys the meaning of our Lord Yahshua. They are here represented as having the blood among them, and it is intimated that God will come by and by to require it, or to revenge it, and to inquire how it was shed, and to punish those who shed it. It must be evident that the reason why Clifton chose this particular citation is that Clark realized that the blood was on certain hands among the Judeans, in order to see the truth of when it was that the Messiah had imposed the revenge of which Clifton speaks. We can refer to the Messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, where it says that after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, 
but not for himself. And the people of the prince, referring to Messiah the prince, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and under the end of the war desolations are determined. So Clifton says in conclusion that if you don't understand two sea lines, you cannot grasp the meaning of all that was going on at that particular time. Now a comment from the Wycliffe Bible Commentary concerning Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, where it says, These persecutions here foretold would fill up the measure of the Jews' guilt, so that divine destruction would come upon that generation of the nation, meaning the race of Cain of the nation, as Clifton inserts in in brackets. Then quoting the Matthew Henry's commentary on Luke 11, verses 49 through 51, Clifton writes, that they must expect no other than to be reckoned with as the fillers up of the measure of persecution. They keep up the trade, as it were, in succession, and therefore are responsible for the debts of the company, even those it has been contracting all along from the blood of Abel, when the world began, to that of Zacharias, and so forward to the end of the Jewish state, it shall be required of this generation or race, this last generation of the Jews whose sin in persecuting Christ's apostles would exceed any of the sins of that kind that their fathers were guilty of, and so would bring wrath upon them to the uttermost. Citing 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Their destruction by the Romans was so terrible that it might well be reckoned, be reckoned the completing of God's vengeance upon that persecuting nation. They are reproved for opposing the gospel of Christ and doing all they could to obstruct the progress and success of it, citing verse 52 of Luke 11. They had not, according to the duty of their place, faithfully expounded to the people those scriptures of the Old Testament which pointed at the Messiah, which, if they had been led into the right understanding of by the lawyers, they would readily have embraced him and his doctrine. Maybe the people would have, but the rulers certainly would not have. But instead of that, they had perverted those texts, and had cast a mist before the eyes of the people by their corrupt glosses upon them like Genesis 4.1. And this is called taking away the key of knowledge. Instead of using that key for the people and helping them to use it aright, they hid it from them. This is called in Matthew shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men. Now we think that the passage just cited is more valuable for what it said of the Romans rather than what it said of the Judeans or the Jews who have ever since continued to be the enemies of Yahweh God, and who will always be his enemies, until they are all destroyed. It didn't end with the destruction of Jerusalem. Clifton Clifton continues with another citation from Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible. We get this on Luke 11.51. The Pharisees like a company of wretched hypocrites, under a pretense of their honoring the memories of the prophets, under the Old Testament, took great care to repair and to adorn their sepulchres, their burial places, 
Well, in the meantime, their hearts were as full of malice against the truth and against Christ and those who came to reveal God's will to them, as ever were their fathers against the prophets. And, saith our Savior, I who am the wisdom of God tell you that I shall send you apostles and prophets, and some of them you shall kill, others you shall persecute, that all the righteous blood that has been shed upon the earth, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, may come upon you. You will notice there is some question as to the correct Zacharias of Luke 11.51 and Matthew 23.35. But there is absolutely no question from these references just quoted as to who Abel's killer was. As you can plainly see, the anti-seedliners have a problem with Luke 11.47 and Matthew 23.34 and they refuse to address it referring to the entire passages, Luke eleven forty seven through 51 and Matthew 23, 34 to 36. To blame the children of Seth for the murder of Abel, as Ted Wheeland has done, is tantamount, is tantamount to false accusation of murder, for which Ted Wheeland must bear the punishment of the law. That is the law of Yahweh. But to avoid the making of a false accusation, one must admit that there is another race in Judea who were indeed guilty of the blood of Abel. That is the point that Clifton is making, that Ted Wheeland would rather make the false accusation than to admit the truth of Scripture. Now Clifton changes the subject to address another aspect of Genesis chapter 3. As the serpent beguiled Eve. I guess he felt he was finished and had some space to pick up a new topic. Clifton's um, style of publication compels him, to this day, it compels him to write his information in a fixed space. My own style is to take as much space as I want because I don't have a, a mailing list. And Clifton disciplined himself to write 2,000 word or 2,500 word tracts for his pamphlets. I think they're about 2,500 words if um, if my memory serves me correctly. And perhaps 5,500 words for his teaching letters, somewhere around there. 55, 5,800 words for his teaching letters. And that's a difficult thing to do with every, with every paper. So you have these spare topics laying around and you fill them in, or you run into a part two or a part three when you really thought you could write something in part one. Here we're going to have 24 parts of special notices to all who deny to see line. I imagine Clifton could have written 24 more if he had, if he had wanted to. So now he's changing the topic to cover his extra space and addresses where Paul says in 2 Corinthians that as the serpent beguiled Eve. The next passage we are going to consider is 2 Corinthians 11 verses 2 and 3 where it says, For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Yahshua. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, 
So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Yahshua. The anti-seed liners really like to jump on this one and proclaim it's all a matter of mental seduction. It would appear that before Eve was seduced by Satan, she was a chaste virgin, according to this passage. Was Eve then a chaste virgin physically, or a chaste virgin mentally? It should be obvious that Paul is telling the Corinthians that he desired their minds not to be violated as Eve was physically violated. Why even use the term chaste virgin if Eve was not violated physically? Notice that Paul tells these Corinthians he had espoused them to one husband. He is saying that he would rather not have them to become espoused to an additional husband as Eve was. In other words, I have espoused you to one husband, not as Eve. Paul was simply implying that Eve, after her encounter with Satan, was no longer a chaste virgin. And like the words for race and seed, the anti-seed liners are no better than the Judeo-Christians, who pervert the meanings of words to suit their own particular doctrine. In order for an allegory to work, one side has to be literally true. If you can run as fast as a jaguar, a jaguar must be able to run very fast. If you can run as fast as a snail, simply doesn't work. We know snails can't run fast. So one side, of the, in order for an allegory to be effective, one side of it has to be literally true. His face was as red as flames of fire. Can you imagine the flames of fire to be green? No. If one side of the allegory is not literally true, the allegory is nonsense. The word parthenos literally describes a woman who is an unmarried virgin. And the word hagnus, according to Liddell and Scott, means undefiled, chaste, or pure when it is used of persons. Therefore, the phrase Parthenus Hagnus is literally a pure or chaste virgin, sexually speaking. If Paul had intended to describe Eve as a morally pure woman, he would have properly called her a gune, a word which means woman, which signifies a woman who is the wife of a man. And Eve was already considered the wife of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. But calling her a Parthenus, or virgin, he is certainly referring to the sanctity of the marriage bed, and not merely to any spiritual or mental state. Clifton continues to make this argument in a somewhat different manner, and he writes that the Greek proves Eve was beguiled mentally and physically. And he says the anti-seed liners simply haven't done their homework on the Greek in this passage. If it were speaking of being mentally beguiled by words, it would have used the word 538, apateo, meaning to deceive, bring, seduce, or mislead into error. Or if Paul would have meant mental seduction, and this is more plausible, if Paul would have meant mental seduction, he probably would have used numbers 5422 or 5423. 
as in Galatians chapter 6 verse 3 and Titus chapter 1 verse 10. Now here Clifton refers, he's not writing the Greek words out. Here he refers to the Greek words phren apateo, which is a verb, and phren apates, which is the corresponding noun. Phren apates and phren apateo are two words Paul had used in those passages which specifically refer to deception of the mind. They come from apateo and the Greek word phrain, which means heart or mind. So if I put phrain together with apateo, I am specifically talking about mental seduction. But Paul didn't use that word here. Clifton explains that instead the word 1818 exapateo is used here. And he says that W.E. Vine, in his An Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, explains it like this. Exapateo is a strengthened form of apateo. And it's rendered beguile in 2 Corinthians 11.3. The more adequate rendering would be as the serpent thoroughly beguiled Eve. So in 1 Timothy 2.14, in the best manuscripts, this stronger form is used of Satan's deception of Eve, literally thoroughly beguiled. The simpler verb, apateo, is used of Adam, and that's referring to where Paul said that Adam was not deceived. Clifton says that if a mental seduction were meant, the word 538, apateo, would have been used. W. E. Vine repeats his explanation of the use of the Greek words apateo and exapateo on pages 278 and 279 under the word deceive. Under the heading verbs on the word apateo, he says, of those who deceive with empty words, belittling the true character of the sins mentioned referring to Ephesians 5.6, of the fact that Adam was not beguiled, referring to 1 Timothy 2.14. Then Vine continues that exapateo is intensive and signifies to beguile thoroughly, to deceive wholly. Thayer in his Greek lexicon and Dr. Spiro Zodiates in his word study dictionary agree with W.E. Vine. And in hindsight I must say that the use of the phrase Parthenos hagnes is a greater proof of Paul's intention than the use of the strengthened word exapateo. However, Clifton, to addresses, Clifton continues to address the verb under the subtitle Anti-Sea Liner addresses 2 Corinthians 11.3 Speaking of Ted Wheeland again. Clifton writes, Most anti-sea liners avoid this passage with a 20-foot pole. But in his booklet, Eve, did she or didn't she, Ted Whelan takes a blind stab in the dark at 2 Corinthians 11.3. First, I would mention that Whelan does not point out the difference between apateo and exapateo, as has been explained by W.E. Vine above. Without such an explanation, one can see how Whelan might drift into a dangerous state of error. As I quote Whelan now on pages 28 through 29, you can perceive his careless or maybe blatant omission. And Clifton writes, quoting, Wieland, Just as they misconstrue the Hebrew word, the seed liners distort the meaning of the Greek word exapateo, translated beguiled, to mean sexual seduction. 
In 2 Corinthians 11.3, exapateo is found six times in the New Testament. It is translated beguiled once and deceived five times, meaning in the King James Version, I presume, as was the case with its Hebrew counterpart, nasha. The Greek word exapateo is not once used with sexual connotations. And that's absolutely wrong. Maybe for reasons other than Clifton points out, but it certainly does have sexual connotations when it's in an allegory referring to chaste virginity. Continuing to quote Wieland, Clifton writes, If exapateo means to sexually seduce, as the seedline teachers claim, then in Romans 7.11, the Apostle Paul declared that sin sexually seduced him. In Romans 16, Paul warned the Roman church, lest divisive false teachers sexually seduce them. And in 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul warned the Christ- Corinthian Christians not to sexually seduce themselves. Consequently, there is nothing in the biblical use of either nasha or exapateo to corroborate, justify, or validate the sea-liner's interpretation of these two words. And Whelan's argument is predicated on the idea that sin does not require action. But there are no thought crimes in Scripture. Eve was not seduced mentally because there are no thought crimes in Scripture. You may think of, you may think wicked thoughts, but you are not punished for wicked thoughts if you don't carry them out. Something physical had to have happened for Eve to have sinned. It wasn't just a thought seduction. The serpent seduced Eve into doing something which Paul compared to chast virginity, that it cost her, which Paul inferred cost Eve her chast virginity. That's where Wieland falls short. Wieland, continuing to write, Clifton still quoting Wieland, he says that if the serpent corresponds to Satan, and the beguiling in Genesis 3 and 2 Corinthians 11 was sexual in nature, then the Apostle Paul was warning the Corinthian Christians against Satan's intention to fornicate with them. Well, Jews intend to fornicate with Christian women all the time. I don't know why Wieland doesn't see that. If such were the case, then why did not the other New Testament writers, or Yahshua, warn of the possibility? Why? Because fornication was not the sin of Genesis 3, and it was not the sin Paul warned the Corinthian church about. Now, Clifton had too much patience. I cannot help but to interject here and respond to Whelan's nonsense, that if fornication were not the sin here, Paul would not have described Eve as a chaste virgin. Maybe a chaste woman, but he specifically used the term virgin of a married woman. Neither would the Jews have responded to Christ that we be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God, where Christ himself denied them that claim. Likewise, the prophet Malachi had prophesied of the exchange between Christ and his enemies, prophesying of that very same claim of the Edomite Jews where he wrote, 
in a dialogue. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? And then the answer to that is, Judah has dealt treacherous, treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. The proof that this prophecy was fulfilled is found in the exchange of Christ where his enemies made those very same claims in John chapter 8. Not being born of Yahweh, being of their father the devil and Cain the first murderer. The Jews who opposed Christ were indeed born of fornication with the daughter of a strange God, in spite of their denials. Judah married himself to a Canaanite woman, and likewise, 2nd century Judea as a kingdom had married itself to the descendants of the Canaanites and Edomites whom they converted to Judaism. And these were the opponents of Christ. The Jews in John chapter 8 had both realized and admitted that Christ was accusing them of being children of fornication, even if they were in denial. And Ted Whelan still doesn't know it. He ignores the passage so that he can remain purposeful in denial. Purposely in denial. Clifton responds, he continues by responding to Wieland and saying, again, if Paul would have meant mental seduction, he probably would have used apateo and apates. Wieland in Galatians 6 and in Titus chapter 1. Wieland doesn't seem to understand that the Bible in both the Old and New Testament uses vulgarities. The prophets called Israel and Judah harlots and whores. The prophets really use some graphic language at times. Ezekiel talks about the children of Israel laying down on the ground and spreading their legs for the passerbys. Yes, the King James Version translates it as openeth thy feet, but it means spreading thy legs. The prophets really use some very graphic language at times, and Paul was no different. I would rather not have to explain to a fully grown man about the birds and the bees. Yes, Paul did compare being deceived to, to non-marital sexual intercourse. Of course he did, because he described Eve as a chaste virgin, not as a moral woman, as a chaste virgin. We do the same thing today. In order to explain, I will illustrate with some modern-day vulgarity similar to the prophets of old. When a man today gets cheated in a business deal, he might say something like, That bastard screwed me out of a hundred dollars. Or I really got shafted on that one. I think you get the point, and I would rather not elaborate any further. Yes, Paul was telling the Romans in chapter 7 that his own sin comparable to non-marital sexual intercourse, could destroy him. Yes, Paul was telling the Romans in chapter 16 that false teachers, comparable to non-marital sexual intercourse, could corrupt them. Yes, Paul was telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that their own self-conceited wisdom, comparable to non-marital sexual intercourse, could mislead them. And yes, Paul was telling the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that they could be mentally beguiled as Eve was literally and physically sexually beguiled. Or Paul wouldn't have used the term virgin. 
My own advice is, Clifton says, be careful of people who use word trickery. The object is to set you up on one word and then clout you with five or six reverse meaning examples. The Jews are masters at this sort of thing. Carefully go back over the quotation by Wieland and see if he might have been setting us up. You might start with, if exapateo means, quote-unquote. If you have his book, you might, if you wasted your money on his book, if you have his book, you might check to see if he may have used that same system in other places. Watch for the setup, followed by several seemingly absurd examples. The con artist might approach you something like this. If this means this, look how absurd this and this and this and this and this is. Once you become aware of this devious system, you can no longer be deceived into believing darkness is light and bitter is sweet. The Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible has this to say, has this to say about this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. There seems to be a reference to Leviticus 21.14, that the high priest must not marry anyone that was not a pure virgin. And that is true. Here then, Christ is the high priest, the spouse or husband, the Corinthian church, the pure virgin to be espoused. The apostle and his helpers had educated and prepared this virgin for her husband and espoused her to him. And then, addressing the part where it says, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, the commentary says, This is a strong reflection on the false apostle and his teaching. He was subtle, and by his subtlety he was enabled to corrupt the minds of the people from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. Or, to follow the metaphor, he had seduced the pure, chaste, well-educated virgin from her duty, affection, and allegiance to her one and only true husband, the high priest, Yahshua Christ. And, as we said... For the metaphor, for the allegory to work, one side of it has to be literal, or Paul's allegory doesn't make any sense. Likewise, in her punishment, Eve was told that thy desire, thy desire shall be to thy husband, because, as it says in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, through envy of the devil came death into the world. Envy of the devil, not envy of some mental image or some spiritual idea. In 4 Maccabees chapter 18, a chaste woman compared compared herself to Eve, and she said, I was a pure virgin, same phrase Paul used here in 2 Corinthians 11, I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care to build up rib. She's vaunting herself referring to Eve, she's describing her own chastity at Eve's expense. But I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert or ravager of the plain, ravisher of the plain, injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake, I don't know why Brenton wrote snake there, he should have wrote serpent, make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. Quoting Brenton Septuagint. Clifton will cite that same passage later in the series, if my memory serves me correctly. 
Paul's use of the same phrase, chaste virgin, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, should by itself slam the door shut on Ted Whelan's Eve, did she or didn't she, because she most certainly did. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.